Well, speaking of bass players, you know, we didn't talk about, so the producer on this has a great name. His name's Muff Winwood, just like the oh, most country great. club name you could ever imagine. Right. But he's Steve Winwood's <laughs> older brother. Oh, no, no shit. Way. What a weird, weird world. When you take on the nickname Muff, does somebody have to give that to you? Or do you just go around, hey, I'm Muff now. Self-appoint. <laughs> his, his full name is Muffward. <laughs> everyone and welcome to another episode of 1001 album complaints it's the show where friends and musicians work our way through robert dimery's list of the 1001 albums you must hear before you die so each week we pick a random album from the list we listen to it we analyze it we deliver some praise and we heap some scorn and ultimately give you our jackass opinions on whether or not you actually need to hear it before you die at the end of the episode we'll all take a vote see if it deserves to be on the list and then we'll pick next week's album i am very excited i'm dialing it up a notch because our good friend rob is suffering from some jet lag so i'm gonna double the energy tonight (laughs) (laughs) but this week we've been listening to a 1974 album called kimono my house by a group called sparks Now, you may not have heard of Sparks, I hadn't, but Sparks have been called by some critics as the biggest band you've never heard of, as well as the best British group to ever come out of America. So, (laughs) That's a good slug on. With that being said, we're going to give a quick listen to the opening track, and then we'll come back with some introductions of the team here, as well as our tweet-length reviews. So here it is, the first track called This Town Ain't Big Enough for the Both of Us. There you have it. So let's work our way around the room with some quick introductions and those tweet length reviews. So let's send it over to Phil first. Yeah, so I'm Phil, long time listener and uh, first time <laughs> caller. And uh, yeah, my tweet length review of this album is uh, this is what it feels like to listen to Frank Zappa for the first time if you've never heard Frank Zappa. <laughs> Uh, let's throw it over to alan hey this is alan um in the minimal research i did i came across a quote and sorry if i'm stealing your thunder adam one of the guys said something to the effect of if you don't like this we don't care (laughs) and that is very evident when you listen to this (laughs) love it rob let's hear it 
Picture a PCP-soaked caravan arriving to perform <laughs> in the court of an 18th century French monarch, having just binged multiple renditions of the Rocky Horror Picture Show on extreme fast-forward. <laughs> I know exactly we, what that sounds like. <laughs> Can we get that on a t-shirt? I think that is, that is the second piece of merch we're going to start selling from 1001 Album Complaints. This is, uh, yeah, this is demented carnival music at its best, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. As, if, as if you need the, dis- the uh, descriptor of demented right. to describe carnival music. <laughs> so this is Adam, and my quick review is that just because you're not serious, that doesn't mean you don't take yourself seriously. There were like eight negatives in there. I'm not sure. I'll have to work work that out at some point. A grammar teacher would be horrified at Fraction that. Fraction reduction. Right. So I, uh, I found a great New York Times article that was recently published in line with a new Sparks documentary that is available on Netflix. And the New York Times article was kind of hyping that documentary. And they had this to say, which I thought was a really nice uh, kind of overview of Sparks. Their witty, hyper-literate songs, along with the singer Russell's good looks and keyboardist Ron's deadpan, glowering stage presence, made Sparks icons of a sort in Europe, but never more than a cult band in the United States. With 25 albums to their name, they have often followed up their biggest moments with radical shifts in style that thrill loyal fans but baffled the more casual listeners. Yes, Phil, 25 albums. Yeah. This is an intimidating catalog. That's the first thing I am you also, I was floored. It's one of those things where, like, you think, how have I never heard of these guys with 25 albums? Wow. Crazy. That's insane. And you know what? I got to give it to them because I'm, like, taking just, like, just a deep dive just at the track names right now. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. I mean, also, like, some of these songs have, like, 3,000 lessons. Like, these guys don't care. I mean, obviously, they- these were released years ago, but, you know. These guys are you know driven what? by something else. They name tracks like instrumental artists name tracks, except they're not <laughs> instrumental. Right, right. And their albums are just they're if you look through their discography, you might just fall in love with them by the albums and their covers. Oh, yeah. These One guys, of them they is, got style for sure. Yes, absolutely. Ooh, they have a 2000 release called Balls. Yeah. So- <laughs> <laughs> I immediately thought of that Jenna Maroney clip from 30 Rock that I sent around you guys like, I don't know, three months ago. It was her summer hit, Balls. This is my first royalty check from my summer dance jam, Balls. Balls, 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 Yeah, you're right, Adam. That is one of the weirdest things about this band. And I'm not I'm not super familiar with this band either, but I they've kind of been somewhere on the out outer edges of my musical galaxy for a while partially through our good friend who went to art school they're kind of like a one of his kind of bands i think or you know they're in that you can see why they'd be in that sphere of of listening experience and but i hadn't really listened to them but yet every once in a while like for music aficionados like us i think i can call us that given how much time we've wasted of our lives talking about listening to futilely attempting to create music you know, I think it's fair to say we're aficionados. And every <laughs> once in a while, someone comes along. I, just, I had this experience like this not too long ago, or this actually it was a few years ago, where we were at the music studio where we were recording, and there's all these music DVDs there. And Tom, it was Tom and me were there. 
and we popped in this DVD and it was like a retrospective of some artist I had never heard of. And I swear I thought it was like a spinal tap thing because they were going through this person through every decade, like having, you know, there was black and white shots of this person with a mop top, like playing Beatles-esque pop. There was freaked out 60s psychedelia shots. There was weird 70s stuff. And I'm like, am I, is this a parody? Is this like a really elaborate parody of what's going on? It sounds like you're describing what this the uh, Sparks Brothers documentary on Netflix is because it really does just walk through every one of their albums. And you got to think these guys started playing music in 69. Did you watch this documentary? I'm great at getting two thirds of the way through documentary. Okay, so I got two thirds. Yeah. I think we all if know you how haven't listened ends, to all so. 25 albums. You are not dedicated to right. this podcast. <laughs> well, can we say also the documentary was made by a famous director, Edgar Wright. Who also made Shaun of the Dead and right, right. Uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World. And he's like a very, I think of him as a very visually and kind of interesting director. So it is a fairly, which which fits their style. He's apparently super fan of the band, I guess. But it sort of fits their style that it's very visual documentary. Sure. It's not just talking heads talking on a screen. It's there's a lot of like animation and different things going on. I struggled with the order of operations for this week, so I didn't know. I didn't want to be tainted by the documentary. So I started with two listens on the album and was scratching my head. Sure. I watched, say, an hour and 45 of the documentary and then came back and listened to the album maybe 10, 12 times. And it made a lot more sense, and I think I appreciated it more. But I'll just give you a little bit of background on who Sparks is. So the band is really focused around two brothers, Ron and Russ Mail. You've probably, if you've Googled them, you, you can... See, one one is this gorgeous singer with, you know, beautiful hair. The other is this kind of waif-like, odd-looking guy who kind of reminds you of Dali or Charlie Chaplin. And the way I remembered them is that Russ, R-U-S-S, S-S is for super sexy, right? So he's got the hair. He's the front man. Ron ends in an N for Nazi because he looks like Hitler. So or you could go with they Chaplin and Ron end in an end. So that's how I kept it, kept it straight in my mind. I'm sure he appreciates that as well. Bold move to rock the Hitler slash Charlie oh, Chaplin yes. mustache. There's I didn't not a think lot you of could people. still do that. I thought, I thought that was Are there just... any I was trying to think are there any other like styles that are officially like kind of culturally banned because you know like, it's funny know, it's funny did Caligula have like a comb over that like you can't use it now I don't know I, I feel like if someone were to have a Trump hairdo that would probably be <laughs> in twenty years at, at that point so uh, Ron the older brother was born in 1945 his brother Russell was born in 48 which would make them at the time of the release of this album 29 and 26 years old they're British right. No. They are not. That's one of they the weirdest things, born, right? Born and raised in California. They were surf kids. They went to UCLA and spent their entire lives in California along like, you know, the surfing coast. They were beach babies. That that's why that tagline it really spoke to me when I when I got back to it in the documentary about them being the best American band to come out of or the British band to come out of America because when even from playing that 30 second clip we just played everything in your musical brain screams oh, yeah. Europe tells you British <laughs> not Southern yes. California no right so they both went to I, I think it was UCLA and they were very artsy guys right I think they majored in film 
And I think one of the brothers has an early student film that you can still see on YouTube or something. And it's very, they were very much into that French Nouveau thing, very much hipsters in that if it's popular, by default, we hate it. There was a quote later on where one of the bass players they picked up said something about liking blood, sweat, and tears, and they almost kicked him out of the band because that was too <laughs> mainstream. He said something like, oh, if he had mentioned Chicago, I would have kicked him out of the band that moment. So these guys are very much counter, kind of counter to what is popular, it, which... You can call them hipsters. That's, that's fine. Yeah, that's right. Acceptable. But this is, this is early 70s hipsters, which is a whole different... This is proto-hipster stuff. But wait, right. wait, wasn't there another story? Was it Iron Maiden where somebody mentioned that they oh, listened yes. to the he, Eagles? He listened and to the was Eagles. Like, this guy's not going to work out. <laughs> I don't want to hear that shit anymore. <laughs> In 1971, they formed their first band called Half Nelson. They released an album under the band name Half Nelson. They just got rejected constantly. Somehow they got in front of Todd Rundgren, and Todd Rundgren saw a spark of genius in these guys and agreed to produce their album. A funny story they mentioned there is that they invited Todd Rundgren and a couple other record producers out to like this empty warehouse with a stage to perform the album to try to get them to, to sign them. And it was totally campy. And at one point, they had a paper mache boat that was like the size of a refrigerator that the singer was singing in as they pushed him across the stage. <laughs> like, just completely bizarre stuff. But as you listen to the album, this all kind of makes sense. Todd Rundgren, by the way, is into some weird shit. I just, I don't feel like he's that well known as a, you know, he's had a couple hits himself, but he's like a behind the scenes weirdo. Yeah. Does he make their first record? Which I assume is called Sparks or something completely insane. So after the flop of Half Nelson, they do what you know modern companies do nowadays. They rebrand. Yeah. So they changed the album cover. They changed their band name to Sparks and re-released it uh, as Sparks. And they were making zero money on this. It wasn't so selling very well. Sparks initial release, self-titled. Is the same as... Is the same as Half Nelson. Half Nelson, okay. Mm, yeah, just slap a new title on it. Well, I do feel like if, if any listeners haven't already Googled what these guys look like, I feel like that's really... It's pretty important. I know we've already mentioned the mustache, yeah, but it's... One they're brothers. Man, they're not that far apart in age, but one guy looks like the school marm from The Wall who's beating up kids. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like they don't look like they belong together. It's bizarre. It is very odd. So they released this album again. It's not so well. They're not really making any money. They were on American Bandstand at one point, and they mentioned that the next week people saw them in the grocery store, like, "Hey, you guys were on Bandstand," and they were paying for their food with food stamps. So they they sense. somehow they somehow cobble enough. Uh, together enough money to release a second you, album. Blood, Sweat, and Tears weren't paying for their right. food stamps. <laughs> <laughs> so you'll notice uh, if you go look at their discography, we talked about the names of songs and the names of albums. Their second album was called A Woofer in Tweeter's Clothing, which you kind of roll your eyes with. It was a bit more exper experimental. It also flopped. So they thought, hey, what if we go to London? So they go to London, and they do great, all right? So they're, they're selling out rooms, their records are selling, but the record company ultimately says, it's not worth it to have you guys living there, paying for your expenses. We're going to bring you back 
to the U.S. So they killed that British. They essentially shut off the uh, the source of money. I love how many chances people used to get back in the day. Yeah, I was thinking. <laughs> Seriously, let's just keep trying. Let's just keep trying. No, no, just move continents again. Just change the name again. But there there was one guy in the documentary that I think he might have he must have been in the band or one of the session musicians on. Wolfer in Tweeter's clothing, and I just liked that his interview was like, I was making this record, I was super excited about it. He's like, I went home and I told my wife, man, if this record doesn't make a big splash, like, I clearly don't, I don't understand anything about music, I need to change careers. And then, like, then they cut to him going, so, I'm a plumber now. (laughs) (laughs) Right? It's probably a little more lucrative. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm sure there's, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of carpenters and uh, plumbers in the wake of coming out of my house. <laughs> Who gave it a shot? Yeah, so I don't understand how these guys. We'll get to that. In I mean, a they ripped though. They're... It's weird though because like this, these are not like these are not like hacked together. These are not plumbers. Right. Songs, you know, yep. not to, yep. not to disparage plumbers. I'm sure there's a lot of great players out there who are also. Plumbers. Blue collar workers. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. sure. Yeah, but these this, guys don't this, come off as very blue collar. I mean, these, these, these guys don't come off as blue collar at all. I yeah. should probably say that I, I like the record too. I, same here. We're saying a lot, I'm going to rip talking on a lot it, of but, shit already, but yeah. I, I do I, like I'm, it. I am so confused. This this leaves me so confused. Like, it's like, I, like if I was like driving down the road and I sort of zone out for a second. You know, and then I tune back into the music. It's like I could be blown away, like this is amazing, or I could come back, like why am I doing this to myself? <laughs> like it was, it's so yeah. I had the first, th- I had that first thought too, where I, I asked my my Google smart speaker to play kimono, uh, kimono my house, and the music started. And I looked at my wife, and she said, "Is is this children's music? <laughs> like what are you listening?" And I went over and like picked up my phone. I was like, "No, this is the right album. It didn't." Didn't get things confused. So quickly back to the history. So Island Records somehow gets involved and sends them back to England. They basically fire their current band. They go to England and they pick up some other backing players, which, again, the players on this album are fantastic. Yeah, There's some legit players in this band or, or, or who recorded on this album. So they get together in England and they, they record Kimono My House. They perform on top of the pops, and that which is a was a musical variety show in the UK, and it's huge. They're a commercial hit right off the bat, and so this launches Kimono My House and Sparks, like we said, as a British band. So there were moments in the documentary where it showed them being chased by rabid fans, you know, circ- or very similar to the Beatles mania kind of stuff. So it's recorded in England, and. Just a, some some quick numbers on uh, Sparks and this album. So as we mentioned, 26 albums across 50 years, which is crazy. I don't know how you make, I guess you make money doing this. If you just record, tour, record, tour 26 times for 50 years, you make enough to live? Maybe there was money in the uh, banana stand. and it's not like these guys are extravagant you know like you know these these giant record you know the guys from iron maiden they they owned a 747 ron the weird looking dude from this band has a snow globe collection like (laughs) (laughs) oh he's making that snow globe money yeah i think it's very obvious that these guys talk like i think a lot of bands talk the talk about we don't care about commercial success 
Yeah, you know, we just we're right. just in it for they the music, but not. like they care. These guys do not give a fuck. That I think I think that is well, abundantly clear. Um, they're, yeah, they're artists I, with a capital A. I think is what you mean, right? One hundred percent. Art first. Yeah, everything else second. Yeah, art for art's sake for sure. I yeah I. I my thinking on this album definitely ebbed and flowed a little bit. I think I sent a text to everyone after my, probably the first like two or three songs. And was just like, what the fuck is this? I don't like, know. This, this is, is going to be rough. Right. And for the most part, I felt that way through the, the rest of the album after a couple spins though, it definitely like, I've got a few of those tunes dancing in my head, like as we speak. So still kind of conflicted on the whole. So Kimono My House, as we mentioned, is the third release from the band. It was released in 1974. This is one of the early-ish entries into the glam rock genre. Totally. For those of you not familiar with glam rock, it's a subgenre of rock and roll that originally originated mainly out of England in the early 70s. It's basically band members who wore outlandish outfits and makeup, over-the-top hair, theatrical stage presence, which was definitely quite different than you think of The Doors. Right, Jim Morrison's super low voice. Everybody's just sitting on stage doing their blues tunes. This is kind of like the 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 counter revolution to that to that type of music. Glam rock. They uh, the the guy from T Rex. I forget his name. Mark Bolton. Um, yes, he was somewhat uh, credited with being the uh, the creator of glam rock from a 1971 performance on Top of the Pops. Very extravagant outfit and, and makeup david bowie also is another big, sure sure just it's a little side anecdote mark boland named his son roland roland boland <laughs> roland boland and bowie <laughs> went along with it and named his kid zoe and then there was a, <laughs> then they had a producer friend called tony visconti and he named his kid monty yes. so it was a really elaborate <laughs> you know the kids are just collateral damage right. in, in the, the whims of these that is, that's fucked up you know, and make a great joke, ruining my child's life. Oh, yeah, that would be great. Well, it's like it's like an inside joke. It's like a continuing, it's like a running inside yeah. joke. Oh, man. But I, I think I think that's part of the secret to their England success is that they rode this glam rock wave where it was a little bit more anything goes for for a few minutes there, and it kind of came it came and went relatively quickly, I think. But the fact that they were so visual and strange, and those were all the anecdotes that I you know that we saw in that documentary, Adam was of people seeing them on top of the pops and just being confused. Like what like, the heck what did I just this? watch? Yeah. So the album itself, when it was released again, you can go Google it. It's two Asian women dressed in geisha outfits on a green background. The band name is not on the cover of the album. The album title is not on the cover of the album there. That's art for you, right? You want to sell albums? Make sure nobody knows. <laughs> Also, just the way like the, who you are. I, I think the cover art is really great and very artsy, and like even the way the makeup—it's not a perfect photograph. Like the makeup is smeared. It's a little Polaroidy, right? And I it, yeah. it's sort of purposefully staged to be. I think again, I'm gonna rip from the documentary, but I think they had Mike Myers of Wayne's World fame say something like, "Hey, it's kind of making fun of fashion photography, but it's also aware that it sort of is fashion photography." Right. Like, this is the pool they kind of play in of being ironic, but also in those same. They were kind of making fun of themselves, also. Sorry, Phil, were you going to say something? That's a, that's just a tough pool to play in. That's. <laughs> it just you have to not care, as, yeah. as Alan mentioned. They they these guys definitely do not care, and there's something admirable about that. I mean, who else in the history of art of music does not care? 
I they've had moderate. I, I don't know what their actual level of success is, but they've certainly they've achieved cult band status, and so I'm sure they can tour reasonably comfortably. I've always it sounds crass to want this, but I've always wanted more transparency of the financial records of, of bands like this who you who you deem who made to be it work. successful. You're like, just show, like, me, what are they just really... show me how it works. Show me the machine. Right, just, or, the... or have they just agreed to make a working class salary, but this is but they're doing what they love. That's the you know, I think that's the I think it's too hard to factor in the money they they piss away after the show, just like waiting for their cash and then blowing it on on the strip well, or apparently the keyboard player the uh which one's the keyboard player again ron ron, ron is and r- nazi hitler ron is the main is the primary <laughs> so writer and he turns out a lot of material and it's not he, these songs are dense with parts yeah, you must have noticed yeah they're so exhausted. i don't think he goes and drinks at the bar afterwards i think he's a disciplined writer so they were on some show in the U.S. in the 70s, and the host asked him, well, like, what's the message that Sparks is trying to get across? And Ron said, we're art, something along the lines of we're artful pop, and we're pop rock with a point of view. And he said that, and it made sense, because I, I you'd be challenged to find one of their songs that's just like a straight-ahead rock love song, or singing about your car, or surfing. Everything is... There's a character, and they're in this scenario, and here's the song about them. Uh, and every, every song on this album is that way. A lot of the songs on, on their other albums, I, I did a little select picking through. And again, they're all point of view. He picks some weird character and just writes about it as though he was in their shoes. It gets even weirder. If you can believe it, it gets even weirder when you start reading the lyrics, which is what I did later in the week. <laughs> yes, I try. There's a couple that I just got lost on on this, but there was one that they mentioned, again, in the documentary. They have a song called Tits, which is, it's on like... Is that the B-side right? to Balls? <laughs> <laughs> but it's a song about a guy at the, a bar, and he's longing for when uh, his his wife's body was his plaything versus to feed their child. And then when you get to the end of the song, it turns out that the bartender who's serving him drinks is actually cheating on or cheating with his wife. On it's just crazy, very very uh, lyrically dense and complex songs. Yeah, and musically too. I, I found it to be I found it grew on me after repeated listens. It reminded me a little bit of maybe a book with a really convoluted plot or a weird writing or literary device where the first read through you're sort of distracted just by what the heck is even going to happen next. And then on the second or subsequent read-throughs, you can kind of relax and just hear it. You know, you're less on edge, so to speak, because you're not worried about where the plot's going or what the character's going to do. All right, right. Let's dive back into the opening track. All right, throw it out to the room. Thoughts? Anything stands out? Seeing as as we just played, see how I'm just going to manifest this? That awesome breakdown section that started at 145, that rocked. So there are so many things about this record that remind me of like Boston and Styx. 
And, yeah. and, yes. and I think both of these are, they've got to be on that like downstream, maybe not Boston so much, on the glam rock. They're more like 90s like mall, almost yacht 70s rock. mall rock or something. <laughs> almost, yeah. <laughs> almost yacht rock. Yeah, almost yacht rock. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, yeah, but like, yeah, lots of sticks vibes here for me. And I don't, yeah, I'm just going to put it out there like that. It's it's got I think they're really trying it's like a controlled chaos, right? They're really trying to create disorientation. I noticed in this song they're using like a vocal pan effect that kind of moves around and it's it's very disorienting. But then it has a lot of that all that seventies bombast that mm-hmm. I think those arena rock bands you're talking about have. And in that way it reminded me of the symphonies, I, I know almost nothing about classical music. Maybe this is the closest we're going to get to a classical record on this podcast. <laughs> but it reminded, it, it reminded me of the version of classical music you would hear in Looney Tunes, which is to say big <laughs> hits. Yeah, I so I'll probably say this a couple times. It probably sounds a little bit crass, but the obviously the instrumentation is pretty sick throughout this album. Like I think we can all appreciate that kind of proggy aspect of it. The vocals, I can't. They are so grating. It's it's the same problem I have with bands like Rush, and yes, to an extent, I just don't know. I don't know what it is. The falsetto is just like my throat hurts listening to that much <laughs> listening to falsetto. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, it was really tough to get past that. Um, I also felt like for this song, I was a little surprised that this is like the marquee hit from the album because I think it, it was decent. It doesn't play but like a radio hit, right? It doesn't play like a radio hit. And I also just didn't feel like it was the strongest song. For was whatever this the reason. biggest hit like back in the day? And I ask this seriously, right? Because I assume we're basing this off of, you know, Spotify, like, you know, play yeah, I thought it was like a single, like a, this is what the they played singles. on that top of the pops. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. Yeah, that's, that's what I was asking. Like, is this the single? Yeah. Okay. This launched them. And I, th- I think to Rob's point a little earlier, it was probably a lot of, what did I just see? That's so weird. I got to go find that. Cause it's so weird. I need more. So, I mean, this could be apocryphal, but in the documentary, they claim that John called Ringo the next day and was like, did you see oh. that? And they sh- and so I don't know if that might be apocryphal, but they also showed a clip of like Pete Townsend on a talk show where somebody oh, mentioned who knew about Sparks. Yes, Mark Boland that's right. playing with Hitler. And he goes, oh, and he starts laughing. He's like, no, you're talking about Sparks. Like, I know, you know, I just saw that one, whatever. <laughs> it definitely made an impression on musicians at the time because they were just like, I've never seen anything like that. That was bizarre. I can't believe they let that air. It's funny. It almost reminded me of um, going back to two points you made earlier, Rob, or somebody mentioned T-Rex. And um, those DVDs at Tim Green's <laughs> oh, yeah. studio. Is that what you were referring to when you yeah, were watching? Yeah, totally, yeah. I remember watching with that uh, Midnight Special with T-Rex, and it was like 18 minutes long, and just being like, what the fuck is happening? They're bringing out <laughs> gongs onto the stage. No, I, well, I, I do, it was, yeah, it was like an 18-minute banger gong, get it on. <laughs> yeah. This is oh, what they used right, to right. put on TV. Oh, man, they grew up <laughs> in the wrong area. Like, I, I know we joked about it at the time, but... Uh, Bolin, that's his name, right? In T-Rex? Yeah. He seriously looks like a vampire who drinks cocaine, not blood. Like, he does not look good. <laughs> like, he, he is not looking healthy. It's performance-enhancing drugs, man. You gotta... Yeah. What I wrote down after I played this song was, I cannot believe this song is only three minutes long. It's a three-minute song. They packed a lot... A lot of these songs are very exhausting in that way. 
exhausting. I think one or two of the other ones we're going to talk about. Like, this is a very long forty-seven minutes, right? As a record, and I, and I don't yeah, mean that in a yeah. bad way, but I mean it is dense. Do you want your music to be exhausting? I... <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you just got off the treadmill after you're done listening to it. We dare you to not pay attention to this. There was a moment at the two minute and 30 mark where there's these hits that are a little early in comparison with the rest of the beat where it was, I decided, I, I thought to myself, oh, this is going to be a musical album. Because up until that point, it was just kind of weird. There was a cartoony gunshot noise at the start of this tune. And yeah, by the end, I, I figured that this was going to be a pretty musical album. So I wound up looking forward to it. Yeah. this this I, I do think this sets the tone for the album, though, which is to say that it's going to be all over the place. And it, car, I, cartoons kept coming to my mind. <laughs> With both, like how high he went, like to hold the note, and how often it changed, and you're, I'm just picturing like the Roadrunner running around and things blowing up, and pianos dropping on people. <laughs> Next up, we're gonna hit a tune called "Thank God It's Not Christmas." song at all about christmas i i I couldn't i couldn't really pick that up at all from the lyrics again i probably should have read the lyrics (laughs) yeah i noticed he got three syllables out of the word christmas that was nice (laughs) i thought that was a pretty good song um there was there's the drum beat in this song it was really subtle but just like the snare hits they take it's like very there's like some offbeat stuff that that was the most memorable part, even though it probably wasn't meant to be that way. Um, but I, I like the song. I, I think it rocks, and I, I noted the drum beat thing as well as a songwriting trick. I, I noticed one other place where they use something kind of similar. It, it's because part of what it is. I mean, there's there's some unique aspects to it, as you alluded to, Alan. But it's that when the verse starts, the drums go to kind of more of a halftime feel. So then you get this much bigger uh, kick in on the chorus. I just feel like like little production or little arrangement tricks like that are sort of underused generally, and they did a good job with that. And yeah, this this song this song rocks, and this is the song to me. I think this is the highlight of the album. But I just want to point out it's on a few of the tracks. There's guitar solos on here, which I feel like if I was just to take a snap little look at a literal snapshot of the band, and here maybe a 10 second description from us of the band i wouldn't be picturing a lot of guitar solos and yet almost all the songs do have pretty ripping yeah they're kind of cool guitar, guitar solos. solos too yeah. like they're real yeah like well, and real. they're quick they they, yeah. they they come in and out like 
super punchy, you know, to kind of leave you wanting a little bit. They were apparently pretty demanding in the studio. There was some, I think the bass player on this album had a blog because somebody had asked him like, do you have any you know, deep production notes on this? Or maybe it was one of the engineers. He, they had a couple tracks or a couple takes where the musicians loved what they did, but Ron and Russ didn't like the tone, which you can change in post, but they made them re-record it like with the tone tweaked. And you know, the bass player said at one point he like, went into this to the to the booth finished it and like threw his bass down and left the room because he was so pissed off that they made him redo what he thought was a fantastic take sounds and like dial his treble up or something sounds like another nerdy demanding duo we're all fans sure of. Yes. <laughs> so i love these guys yes it's like it's like i want to love them it's like i don't know where i'm at on this record but i feel like i probably haven't but i may have opened a wound here right like and <laughs> i do wonder how much steely dan would would split hairs over like bass tone though oh my god mm. it's yeah <laughs> they they didn't like they didn't like bernard purdy because he wasn't apparently on the beat enough so they brought it remember they made that album machine or that drum machine <laughs> yeah, sure. merlin or marvin couldn't do the purdy shuffle it was the, it was the geekiest name ever they, they were particular Elvin. yeah yeah well speaking of bass players you know we didn't talk about so the producer on this has a great name his name's muff winwood just like the oh, most country great. club name you could ever imagine, ever. but he's Steve Winwood's <laughs> older brother. Oh no, no way! What a yeah, weird, and I guess he was. World. Yeah, he was in that ba- with Steve Winwood. He was in that band Spencer Davis group that uh, has that song "Give Me Some Lovin." Sure. Hmm. Yeah, but I just thought it was a funny name. So Muff Winwood <laughs> produced this record. Yeah, and his other production credit that I took note of: the first Dire Straits record, Ooh, the one with Salt and Swing on it. Yeah, that's a winner. When you take on the nickname Muff, does somebody have to give that to you, or do you just go around? Hey, I'm Muff now. Self appoint. <laughs> his, his full name is Muffward. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, we're gonna keep moving along here, uh, gentlemen. I I switched around the focus list a little bit, so if you reload it on Spotify, but either way, we're gonna go listen now to "Talent Is an Asset." I don't think Apple existed in 1974, but if they did, this was on their early AirPod commercial, I'm pretty sure. I am so glad you said that, dude. This fits right in with indie pop for the early 2000s. Dude, yeah, I, yeah. Dude, the only note I had for this song, other than I thought the bass was mixed like nice and forward, is it, that it sounds like with those claps at the beginning, like the beginning of, I, I guess they're called explainer videos, where like, you know, you're being onboarded to some new like tech product and it's like voiceover <laughs> animation and whiteboard shit explaining and what the product Monday. does. And with Monday.com, you can do project <laughs> management across multiple things. 
click <laughs> exactly here, notify your team, like. and add hours. Man, they were like 30 years ahead of the curve. Right. <laughs> yeah, that sounds that sounds pretty good. In fact, I'm gonna look in and get some backing tracks from Sparks. And that that hand comes on the screen and draws with the pencil and does the work. Uh-huh, yeah. sure. Yeah, and then maybe the whole screen swipes to like a different scene. But it's like the same animation style. But to me, this is it's typifies them because it's really danceable and easy going for about thirty seconds and they're like, Oh, you you were just settling into that? <laughs> Fuck you. You know, we gotta make we gotta switch it up on you. We're also going to write the song about Albert Einstein. This song is apparently about Albert Einstein. I just briefly read through, and you can tell because they mention relative, like relativity, and I think like speed of light, and they say Albert in there a couple times as well. So, uh, so again, point of view. I guess them and Counting Crows have the market cornered on songs about <laughs> Einstein. <laughs> on songs. <laughs> Sounds like a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Get to work. Rob, your next concept album is all about <laughs> physicists throughout Dude, I bet time. You could, I bet you could move a lot of copies of an album about Einstein. Oh, I was, yeah, just like troubled physicists and mathematicians throughout history. Because I actually just right. read a book about that recently. And it's, yeah, there's some interesting stories behind some of those discoveries. Open up with Faraday is the big rock number. Oh, yeah. Sorry, that is a deep geek cut right there. I, I, I totally agree with the, the comment that this has like early 2000s vibes like indie pop i think there's actually several songs on this record talent is an asset amateur hour uh and there's oh yeah the one we're just talking about thank god it's not christmas uh they all have like a early 2000s like indie pop you know like uh and it's kind of bizarre right like uh yeah, it, it feels like you can definitely hear their influence in music and that they're kind of forward-looking. And then other stuff they do, no one picked up on and took took with them. <laughs> well, I was really shocked. Again, the very minimal, very, very minimal amount of research I did on this album of how many people cite them as major influences like Bjork, you know, John Frusciante and, uh, you know, Morrissey, which, you know, doesn't yeah. do much for their uh, credibility in, in my mind. But they were, I mean, a lot of artists point to them as, as like big inspiration. Flea, they had Flea in the documentary talking about how these guys like changed his life when he heard the, the first album. And Weird Al was on there, which kind of sold it for me, I'll be honest. I was watching the documentary. The first 30 seconds I saw Weird Al, I was like, oh, well, I love these guys. Yeah, they have. <laughs> I don't have to listen to a note. They have a record <laughs> that they put out in 1997 called Plagiarism. And the cover. Yeah. Is like yes. their faces photoshopped onto like two really ripped dudes, but it's like done well enough that like you know like they want you to believe that this is what they look like. They're like bodybuilders in their underwear, and the yeah, one yeah, guy just has like on Calvin glasses. Klein, right? They have it's, it's so great good. cover art. They have great cover yes. art. Damn, who knew Hitler was so ripped? Right. <laughs> I'm I'm feeling more and more confused. I think, like, in terms of, like, albums, I think my favorite kind of joke that they did, their seventh album from 1977, yes, seventh album is called Introducing Sparks. <laughs> that's just that's just genius. That's awesome. 
I love it. Uh, guys, I mean, it, I, guys, I just dipped my toe in the 1994 release gratuitous sax and senseless violins. And <laughs> this is not the same band. This is terrible. Terrible. They Dude, go like, all it's, over it's the like place. It's like Duran Duran, but like way worse. Like way, way worse than the worst Duran Duran. Holy they shit, went I'm so heavy. It's funny you mention it because Duran Duran were in the documentary also. Because <laughs> they went heavy into electronic music in the uh, throughout the '80s, like heavy into it. There was some I forget the guy who's known for doing electronic '80s synth pop, but I think one of their albums was exclusively electronic, as in like no uh, analog instruments except his voice. I think when you have a when you have a 50 year career, we can. We're going to assume that you took some. Uh, you took some. Yeah, you switched things. Right. Their 1998 <laughs> release, Interior Designs, includes a track called Madonna, which was released in English, French, German, and Spanish. Uh, that, that's a pro move. <laughs> that, ABBA used to do that, where they would re record the vocals in different languages to uh, disseminate throughout Europe, and it was very effective. <laughs> I believe, yeah. I believe yeah. That's almost as good as the, the Guns N' Roses Don't Cry trick, where they're like, hey, we'll just release the same song with different lyrics. <laughs> make you buy the second album. <laughs> All right, we're going to move things along to the next song on our focus list called Asta Manana Monsieur. I'll be honest, this is my favorite song on the entire album. I've listened to this probably 20 times. Uh, I don't, it sounds like something else after the intro, and I can't put my finger on it, but I love it. And I assume I would love whatever other song this sounds like. It's funny you say that. I was having that brain tickle too, and I couldn't quite get it. I just wrote that it sounded more 80s than 70s. It sounded kind of futuristic for the 70s, which is to say it took me into the 80s. Definitely got some Mr. Roboto vibes. Phil Mm -hmm. already brought up Sticks. But this, and this is a descriptor for the whole album, but it made me think of this anecdote that sticks in my mind from long ago where a woman I knew, I was playing They Might Be Giants for, specifically the They Might Be Giants song, Where Your Eyes Don't Go, and I'm a huge fan of They Might Be Giants. And her descriptor was, she did not like it. <laughs> she said, uh, <laughs> this sounds like music from some, from some weird play. <laughs> And that always stuck with me because I was like, you've perfectly described why I love it and why everyone else will hate it. I think that applies here. It's I, I got like queen vibes, but also the, the sticks, the Mitch, oh, Mr. Yeah. Roboto vibe was definitely there. Um, the, correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe we can go back and look at this. Is there like a 45 second fade out? to this song oh yes i wrote that down too dude (laughs) yes it's like totally boosting my confidence to do extra long fades that i want but i feel uh, embarrassed about like i was trying to pay attention to the timelines just because i was like kind of multitasking at one point when i was listening and 
I was like, oh, the music's fading out, but there's like a minute left. There must be some kick in or there's so, something that comes back in. Coming. No, it was just the something's longest coming. fade out you've ever heard in your life. <laughs> so, Rob, you like long fades? You always want longer I just, fades? I could just feel a lot of times I've wanted to advocate for a longer fade on my songs, but <laughs> I felt bad back. about it for yeah, some yeah, reason. Right. Like, no, it needs to keep going, but really low. Now you have your precedent. Exactly. These guys managed to <laughs> potentially my favorite rhyme on the entire album. They rhymed iron ore with monsieur. <laughs> what, what are you doing? Why, why is the word iron ore in a song to begin with? I don't know. They also mentioned Immanuel Kant, the, uh, the philosopher, and they make kind of a joke about a double entendre there. Like, you guys are, this is genius. It really is like Weird Al, and they might be giants, and yeah. Definitely, definitely proto all that stuff makes perfect sense. Is it? Is that a Mellotron in the opening of this? Do you know the same, that weird instrument that's on uh, Strawberry Fields? Did you guys notice that? Yes, because they did use a Mellotron uh, in Equator, which we're going to talk about next. Oh, okay. But yes. Yeah. So, yeah, th- this was a great tune. Loved it. All right. We're going to move things on to what I consider. I shouldn't poison the well here, but I find that this is the train wreck low point of the album. This one is the song about meeting your lover at the equator, but they don't show up. This song is called Equator. pulled up the lyrics to this song at one point because I was just curious and did a control F. Equator shows up like 23 <laughs> times I think. <laughs> you'll you'll be happy to know that literally half of the song is the outro and him saying Equator <laughs> in falsetto. I'm just picturing that this is the part of the stage show where the, everything breaks down and he's like flopping around like a fish on the stage. <laughs> like that's the most charitable read. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I, I also think this is maybe a bit of a low point. Although that said, it's not that different than the rest of the album. To to be fair to it, true, sure, it, sure, it does rely a little too heavily on one melody, and it's the only one that has this long, extended, strange breakdown. And this, although the falsetto, as Alan mentioned earlier, made me maybe generally uncomfortable, the falsetto particularly made me uncomfortable here, even before the breakdown. It made me <laughs> yeah. feel something. You didn't even ache. get the chill till the breakdown. Yeah. I actually felt like the horns too during the I'll call it the end, but it's like the last two minutes. It felt like there was it's just these relentless stabs. Yeah. 
very chaotic and it was very unsettling i i did not like the the sax was sort of mirroring the vocals in a way it's very very great not in a good way not in a good way yeah no yeah yeah song so this not the this, best song on the album this album in general like rattled me you know it's just like there's a, there's really just like a lot there it's sort of difficult to settle into especially like you know this format where we're sort of like just drowning ourselves in something for a week right i think certain right. you know what i mean like certain records i think it's just like they take more easily uh but like do the overall production level on this is completely insane Right? Like, we, we've sort of been underscoring it a little, right? Like, we're taking for granted to a degree. The insane, insane, it's insane. The, the guitars are, the tones are great. And the, and the writing, like, the composition, like, you know, the literal, like, the bass is going to play this note, and the keyboards yeah. will play these notes, you know, and then the Mellotron will play those notes, but only in the left speaker. Like, it's intense. It's really, it's, it really is, you know, it's, it's intense. That's the opposite of lazy at it's, every yeah, turn. For sure, like they yeah. wrote yeah, everything. Yeah, right. Yeah, sure. If it's freaking you out, Phil, there's some something's going on with this. <laughs> I just yeah, Phil's the, not easily rattled. Yeah, it's rattled. It rattled me a little. I couldn't. I couldn't settle in. Although, like, I also like I can't look away. You know, like for sure. <laughs> well, of all the words you could use to describe this album, the word boring will never show up. Oh, right, right. <laughs> just to give a little bit of love to the the players on the album. Cause again, I think it's wonderfully produced, recorded, performed. So obviously you've got Russell on vocals, Ron on keyboards, a guy named Martin Gordon on bass, Adrian Fisher on guitar and Norman Dinky diamond on drums, percussion and castanets. And yeah, I, I just think they do a, a great job. The bass tone yeah. as well. I, I mentioned, I don't know what it is, Alan, I called it the bass from Yes. It's probably Wait, a Rickenbacker or or okay. some or like a round wounds with a pick, just like a lot of attack. But yeah, it definitely is is much more like mid forward rather than like that old old school kind of like subby Motown. I, I have a note about the the chorus bass at the uh, at the beginning of Barbecue, uh, just being like a really Oof. hip bass and also. <laughs> Is that the best or worst song title on the record? I don't know. <laughs> but a couple contenders. Yeah, it's a couple of contenders, yeah. But there's a really cool bass tone there that's, again, it's very much in that that yes, sort of like uh, that yes song. Well, I think a lot of the bass, kind of my takeaway from the album is I the bass sounds really good, and I think the tone is good, but I don't think the playing is like exceptional i think that they mix it really forward or the way it's composed the bass fills space when there's not much else happening like they they find these really nice pockets where i think it's not that in my mind that it's particularly special bass but it just comes through in a, in a really like smart way we talk about this being their breakout hit by the way and <laughs> it's only certification was in the uk it went gold which means it sold a hundred thousand Wait, they only had one. Hit? No, no, I mean the album oh, itself. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. I don't even know if uh, <laughs> they released it. I assume they released it as a single, but there wasn't any information on whether or not it it uh, was certified in in the UK. They had one other album, which might be their next or the following, which made silver in the UK, which means you've sold sixty thousand. But those are the only two that had any type of certification across fifty years. 
So they they have not sold a lot. Again, I get why Dimery chose this. This was their breakout hit. This put them on the chart. This made you think they were a UK band. But yeah, they just kind of continued their career somewhat cruising under the radar with a with a pop or with a uh, a cult following. And in fact, right now they're I think they're touring. They have a 38 uh, city world tour going on as we speak, or it starts in February or something like that. I thought you were going to say a 38 keyboard stage setup. Right. <laughs> there is, are they opening for air by any chance? <laughs> let's, uh, let's wrap this thing up. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we've been listening to Kimono My House by the band Sparks. We're going to work our way around the room and ask the most important question of the night, does this deserve to be on the 1001 albums you must hear before you die? Let's send it over to Alan first. I really struggled with this one. I feel like I say that a lot, but (laughs) there were definitely periods where I was convinced and no one was going to talk me down from saying this does not belong. It's, it's challenging. It's grading at times. I will probably not give this another spin anytime soon, but I do think it belongs. I think even setting aside my opinion, which I, I do think that there's a lot of good in this album because it's so influential to so many, you know, different artists and it just seems to have left a really lasting impact. I know I'll be thinking about this album for a while. Um, so yeah, I do think it belongs on the list. Phil. So yeah, Alan, I think really well said, and to that end, I'm, I'm sort of going to give the same answer, gonna, but I'm going to go the other way. I could not digest this in a week. Like, I, 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 the must is really strong. You know, uh, I, I think you can live your life without listening to this record. It's really intense. It's, it's overwhelming. Uh, that said, it's really hip and I'm really intrigued. And this conversation has only left me more intrigued. Uh, I think there are a bunch of brilliant standalone tunes. You can't deny the clear impact it's had, especially when we sort of understand its context. So I think you can skip Sparks, Kimono, My House, but I'm going to be digging in more and I might follow up on future podcasts. <laughs> You're like, I wouldn't recommend this, right. but I'm going to listen to the <laughs> shit out of more of this. <laughs> yes. It's weird. I don't know. I'm just confused. <laughs> Love confused. All right, Rob, where do you stand, my friend? Yeah, it was a tough one for me as well. I will definitely listen to this again, and I'm intrigued as well to go a little deeper on their catalog. It really depends on what kind of music listener you are. If you're a fan of the absurd, if you're a fan, you know, if you have a sense of humor about the pomp and circumstance of music theory and what it even means to be in a band then this is the kind of stuff you should be exploring because I don't think I've heard anything that sounds like this before. That said, it is definitely not for everybody. So I feel like it would be going against some of my previous votes, my previous negative votes for the likes of Nena Cherry and others. To You know, I assume somebody enjoys those things. And, but <laughs> like Nena Cherry. But, but they're definitely not essential to the musical listener. So I... Very conflicted, but I'm going to go with a no on this record. But absolutely, if you're a musical seeker who likes weird stuff like I do, then yeah, you should absolutely listen to it. But does everyone need it in their life? No. All right, so my first foray into Sparks, in addition to 
asking my smart speaker to play them was that I Googled them and Google has a list of frequently asked things. And one of the questions was, is the Sparks band real? <laughs> Fair question. And after this week, I have an answer. It's yes, they're real and they're fantastic. Nice. And so <laughs> I am falling on the side of yes. These guys are, and maybe it's, it's going back and looking at my response to the B-52s, which is the B-52s were a singular thing in music. I may have a little regret on voting them down from that, from that episode. I'm going to, to redeem myself for that mistake <laughs> and say that, yes, you need to listen to this. The, these guys are outlandish. They're weird. Uh, they managed to cruise under the radar for so long. And I'm just super happy that I listen to these guys because I never would have had an excuse to listen to them outside of the experience of this podcast. So I'm going to go ahead and say yes, meaning that I am the tiebreaker. So it's a yes for Sparks. Congratulations, Ron and Russ. You guys are weird as hell, and you deserve to be on the list. Robert Dimery was apparently right. So having said that, we are going to throw things over to, I think Rob has some insight into the Albinator, if I recall. Yes, Tom's not with us today, but I have a cup of tea leaves prepared by an old gypsy woman <laughs> that I've flipped over onto my napkin and uh, prepared to read from that. Um, but what sound effect do you need for these tea leaves? It's a good question. You know what? I'm going to go ahead and take the napkin and I'm going to throw it on, on a... On a makeshift wheel I have here in my bedroom. No connection to the Albinator. Of course. And we will next week be listening to... Oh. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black. Oh. Just a hair more mainstream. A little... <laughs> Just a hair. A little more... A little more palatable, I, like I would the say. The vocals are going to be slightly downrange of right. the male brothers also. <laughs> that so, is a great point. Somehow. Yeah, right, probably right. feel relaxing to my ear. It will be, yes. I can finally relax my butthole from yeah. listening. How many octaves on the piano can we cover for these two weeks? I can assure you there is not a 45-second fade-out on this album. <laughs> We should we should we should create a, a chart right where we log the highest and lowest note sang on each record, maybe log gender because this is gonna be the highest gender male yeah yeah right. the highest, oh yeah actually yeah overall low, yeah. I mean Amy Winehouse probably hits like low G like like open E on a guitar on this record very low for a female and I Sparks encourage was through the, you through the through the roof for. For a man. I encourage you to add those columns to our spreadsheet, folks. Please. <laughs> please do. Um, yeah, let me definitely backtrack to the last thirty-five episodes too. We're we're starting to find our niche here. <laughs> but you don't have to listen to us. You just have to listen to the records again yeah, and then sure. uh, you know catalog the notes. <laughs> Actually, I meant to ask Adam. Did we didn't even mention where this name came from? I I was guessing that it came from this Rosemary Clooney song. Yes, come that over is correct. my house or come on to yep. my house or something. Yeah, Come On In My House, which I think was released in 51 by Rosemary Clooney. And I don't know why they chose that. Maybe they just thought it was a fun pun or a play on words like so many other of the things in their career. I believe that's George's aunt, I want to say. Oh, okay. I believe. 
All right, dear listeners, did we get it right? Did we get it wrong? Let us know. You can drop us an email at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. Let us know what you think. And, uh, yeah, send us some love. Send us some hate. We'll try to read it on the air. Don't send us hate. (laughs) (laughs) Opening the floodgates. All right. Yeah, maybe that's a bad idea. All right. I think that's going to wrap it up here for us at 1001 Album Complaints. So I have been Adam. I'm Alan. I'm Phil. And I'm Rob. Aboosh. <laughs>